Welcome to the SAPTA podcast. On June 17th, we recorded a video dialogue with Rebecca Martin, Hilary Terhune, Ashley Parrish, and APTA staff Michelle Vanderhoff on the topic of the COVID-19 outcome measures. Here's that discussion. Good afternoon. I'm Michelle Vanderhoff, Lead Editorial Specialist at APTA. Thank you for joining us for this APTA live event titled COVID-19 Outcome Measures for Physical Therapy. APTAs and sections have been at the forefront of the association's efforts to keep members informed during the pandemic, especially with regard to how to assess patients in light of COVID-19. So today we'll be talking with members of APTA's Cross Academy Section COVID-19 Core Outcome Measure Task Force about the physical therapy core outcome measures algorithm they developed, one for adults and one for children. So today we are joined by Rebecca Martin, who is chair of the task force, Hilary Terhune, and Ashley Parrish. Thank you all for being here today. Thanks for having us. So I'll start with you, Rebecca, and have you guys just give a brief introduction. Sure. My name is Rebecca Martin. I'm the chair of the COVID-19 Core Outcome Measures Task Force. That's a cross-sections and academy task force within the APTA. I also, um, I'm very active within the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. I presented last year at CSM on COVID-19. I'll be presenting this upcoming year. I'm excited about long COVID and COVID-19. I was an invited speaker at World Physio in the long COVID discussion panel, and I've been working with the World Physio teams to create the safe guidelines for rehabilitation for people with long COVID, um, the briefing paper that just came out, as well as the toolkit that was just released today for World Physio Day on September 8th. Thank you. Hillary. Hi, my name is Hillary Terhune. I am a board-certified uh, pediatric clinical specialist. Um, I have been working in the school-based realm for over a decade now. Um, I've been involved with the COVID-19 uh, task force in the pediatric academy and um, through telehealth. I've uh, presented at our um, annual visit, our annual um, conference on um, areas of knowledge translation and um, have been part of the Cross Academy task force in uh, representing the pediatric realm for um, since um, April of 2020. So glad to be here. Thank you. Ashley, how about you? Hi, I'm Ashley Parrish. I'm an assistant professor at UAB in Birmingham, Alabama. I'm a cardiovascular and pulmonary clinical specialist with a track towards pediatrics. I'm also a respiratory therapist. So my love and passion is ICU care and working with critical um, illnesses and things like that. I was part of the PACER project through the Academy of Cardiovascular and Pulmonary Physical Therapy and presented on pediatric COVID. I've been a part of the pediatric COVID task force since uh, November-ish. Wonderful. Again, thank you all for being here. Now, let's start off with kind of giving a historical perspective for viewers. Um, why was this task force formed and what sections were involved? Yeah, so during the spring of 2020, Matt Mezabov, who is the president of the HBA, he realized that we would be stronger together. So he worked with the APTA to join the leaders of the different academies and sections together 
in what's known as the COVID response panel. And that panel represents, I believe it's 17 sections and academies. We used to meet weekly for a while, then it was once a month, and now it's more of an as-needed basis as individuals bring forward different projects uh, or different ideas, thoughts about how we could be better at taking care of individuals with COVID-19 or who are recovering from COVID-19. Um, so late in the spring last year, I, I believe it was Jack, uh, Zame, sorry, James Zakazuski from the sports section who actually initiated the conversation about how we could really benefit from having some common measures that we could use across the patient care continuum so we could gain a better understanding of how physical therapists are able to impact the care um, and the management of individuals with COVID-19. And so there was some lively discussion and then a charge was formed, a task force was formed. We invited um, individuals, well, we invited sections to appoint up to two representatives from each section. And we ended up with nine sections that were active in it, neuro, CVP, acute, peds, home health, private practice, oncology, ortho, and geriatric sections all um, had representation in the task force. And that's what I think is most exciting to me about the task force itself is that this truly was not driven by one or two sections. This was a collaboration of experts from all these different perspectives that came together and made sure that the recommendations that we could make would really feel any PT in our country would feel like they could apply those in the clinic, which was really the goal. So how did the group select the core outcome measures? What were your criteria? Right. So, well, first we outlined and we kind of agreed on a, well, we definitely agreed on an expedited review process that was a modified Delphi process, and it hinged on expert consensus. We knew that first there wasn't going to be research out there on it. We knew that we could look up what the signs and symptoms were, but that we weren't going to have good consensus on or studies on what would be the best tests and measures. Uh, so we decided that we were gonna go with those tests and measures that were already recommended by sections and academies. So we started there. Then we looked for any gaps in, in constructs that we identified as important. So we reviewed the literature for signs and symptoms. We realized these are the things that we need to be able to measure in the clinic. We went to find tests that we already had recommended for different diagnoses that were similar. And then we filled in any gaps that we had. And then we opened that for public comment and said, all right, these are all the tests that we're considering. What are we missing? What are we not thinking through here? Um, and we only had a few that we added through those public comments. We ended up with 72 tests that we actually reviewed um, and considered. And um, so we compiled those. Our criteria were really that they needed to be able to be completed in in any setting. So we had uh, like a typical space of eight by 10 feet that we were shooting for that we could complete them within. We wanted them all to be free so that they could be easily accessible by any PT. They needed to have um, psychometric properties that were at least an eight or above for ICC ranges. We wanted high validity and reliability ratings. Um, so we had our minimum cutoff scores and then we compared them for once we were looking more at um, which ones we had ruled out and ruled in, we then compared them side by side to say, okay, these ones are exceeding or, or these ones are maybe not as good. And that's how we kind of whittled it down at the end. Um, and then we also wanted to make sure that it would span. So if somebody was either at a lower functional level at the 
start or if they were very severely impacted and ended up in the ICU, could we capture those individuals at their current functional level all the way back to returning into the community? So it was a, a pretty big charge and a pretty big goal. Um, and that's why it was really so important to have all those different perspectives that were there. Um, so our group worked together and we made sure that um, that from each section's perspective, our inclusion and exclusion criteria were things that would work in their clinical setting. So I think the, the best example of how you can think this through or, or why it's so important to have those different perspectives is a six-minute walk test. So that's probably the one test that we've heard the most of, you know, why didn't you include that? It's a great test, right? It's so well studied. It's predictive. It's so responsive to change. But then we said we had people in our group say, wait, what about home health? It's not going to work there. What about... Um, for telehealth, what about my private practice outpatient clinics? It's not going to work there. So our goal was really to make sure that nobody would be left out. And nearly every PT in the country needed guidance for this new population. Um, so that's kind of how we, we approached it. Hillary, do you want to jump in to talk about how the pediatric process went? Of course. So uh, the pediatric group um, joined the party in uh, in May of 2020. Um, we uh, came in at a point where um, the adult group had had honed down their uh, their process to about two or three measures per construct. Um, so we were fairly overwhelmed when we saw all the work that had been done. Um, when we first came to the table, it we had. Um, the adult group had seen this, the pediatric population as potentially um, a sidebar. Um, so uh, to choose a few measures to, um, to represent the pediatric population, as we dug into the project, uh, myself and Amanda Deganji, who was also involved at that point, um, she and I looked at the, the process and all the constructs and realized that we could not represent the entirety of the population from zero to 18 um, with different developmental abilities and, um, and uh, maybe conditions that might affect uh, the way we would uh, process these measures. So um, we opened up uh, the similar process to the adults and we decided that we would actually create three um, core tracks. So we, we created a track for children aged zero through four and those who are, were currently um, in a state of uh, COVID infection that, that would place them potentially in the hospital so they had lower functional levels. Um, and then we had our core set, which was uh, between five and 18 years old, uh, primarily ambulatory children. And then we have a, an additional set of core measures for um, children who primarily use wheelchairs for their mobility. So all of these tracks represented as many uh, children as we were, um, as we uh, could, could manage. So uh, like uh, Rebecca said, um, we had the same inclusion criteria, including they needed to be short in duration, available without cost, could be used in any setting, and the reliability and validity had been shown to be uh, within the age ranges and um, similar types of um, possibly disease processes. Uh, we did run into a number of barriers as um, pediatric physical therapists can um, imagine um, cost was a was a 
a very strong deterrent to be uh, to use some of the more commonly used um, measures. So we had to move into the realm of what we call field tests. Many of the literatures from um, physical education and sports related um, research. So um, we feel that the um, our primary core set from the school age children between five and 18, we were able to meet all of the inclusion and exclusion criteria with the other two sets it, um, in, in the hospital setting. We, we recognize that, that therapists would need to follow their own um, uh, guidelines according to their, uh, their setting and their clinical judgment based on the, uh, the functional level, but also the disease course. Um, and in wheelchairs, we found that there was a, um, the wheelchair measures, um, they, there was some age um, differences between um, where the psychometrics, so we weren't able to represent in the younger category, but we really truly felt that it was better to present the, um, the therapists with, with a feasible tool to use. Um, and we would just acknowledge that the psychometrics were not, you know, not available for those tests. Um, so all in all, it was a, a great process to go through. And um, we also recognize that in the older, age ranges between 16 and 18 years old. Um, therapists may choose to use the adult core sets um, and um, should be aware of, of how that transition would go through, particularly as we start talking about long COVID and um, the, how, how developmental phases might, might put them in more of an adult range. So that was our process. Wow, you guys did a lot of work. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, Ashley, um, this this one's for you, um, and you know the um, I guess for the other, for Hillary and Rebecca too. Um, but are these measures intended for use during or after COVID or the whole spectrum? Yeah. So we anticipate that they can be with um, long COVID type symptoms. Uh, so currently our research is showing that children really have varied long COVID symptoms. And I believe um, um, Rebecca will talk about this in a little bit, but the long COVID symptoms we're seeing in children parallel that of an adult. Um, so things like GI problems, nausea, dizziness, seizures, hallucinations, um, pain around the heart, lethargy, things like that. So if you think about some of those symptoms like lethargy, if somebody has that, you know, they're not going to be as active as they typically are. So they're going to get weak. Okay? They're going to lose their power. They're going to have pretty poor endurance. So those are all things that we captured with our COVID core outcome measures. And we feel like they can be utilized with those with the long COVID type symptoms. Um, one question mark we have is that, you know, the research is showing that these symptoms vary from day to day. So one day a kid might be very lethargic, 
the next day they might be a little bit better and they can go on that cyclical roller coaster where they might be worse one day than and then the other um, but that's where we have to really use our clinical judgment um, same thing for a patient with like a total knee replacement one day they might be better than the other in terms of pain um, so just using our clinical judgment when we deliver these outcomes um, and marking how a patient did and tracking their progress but I feel like this is a huge area for research and growth that we really need to look into. Most of the long-term um, side effects of COVID have really been studied in pediatrics in the UK versus the US. So huge area of opportunity for people. Right. And I'll just jump in to add that it really was our goal from the start before we even had a term for long COVID that these core outcome measures would be able to span from when somebody had acute COVID, which is from zero to four weeks from the onset of those symptoms um, through the post-acute phase or that ongoing symptomatic, which is four weeks to 12 weeks, and then into long COVID or the post-acute sequelae of COVID-19 known as PASC, which is symptoms beyond that 12-week point. Uh, so that was our goal to start with. We didn't realize just how long it would go, but especially uh, those of us in the neuro world were saying, hey, those cognitive changes, it sounds like this might be something that's a, a little bit more persistent. So what seemed like a really odd choice to some at the start to have that cognition in there, it really turned out to be very useful. Um, while we may not set goals directly related to cognition, I, we sometimes do, dual tasking and, and those kinds of things. Um, but we definitely need to have an understanding of how our patients are functioning cognitively and how that is going to impact our plan of care. So I'm really glad to have that one in there. But um, right now our task force is working on compiling a survey that's going to be live for the, the entire month of July. And uh, that survey is going to ask first, you know, what's your awareness of the core, but then also are you using the core? If you're not, what are your barriers? What other tests are you choosing instead? So that we can kind of come back with that information and, and decide how well it's working uh, or what strategies we may need to implement to, to make them more helpful for individuals. And then we're also asking those questions in relation to long COVID or PASC. And so we can learn a little bit more about what other recommendations may be needed. Right now, our perspective is probably that that our five core outcome measures, the Promise Global 10 or the health, uh, for health-related quality of life, the SLUMS for cognition, MRC, some score for strength uh, or power, and the short performance, uh, the short physical performance battery. I always miss that, mix up those two Ps in there um, for more of this functional mobility. And then the two-minute step test for endurance. We're thinking those five are really still going to capture those important constructs. But we're imagining with what we're learning about autonomic dysfunction, as well as um, post-exertional malaise, that we're probably going to see some additional needs for recommendations for screening tools. Yeah. And just a quick side note for viewers who, who may not yet be familiar with the term PASC, um, post-acute sequela of COVID-19, which is the more technical term for long COVID. Hillary, did you want to contribute to that question? No, I'm all set. <laughs> okay. Uh, just a reminder for viewers, if you have questions, um, please leave them in the comments section and we'll answer them throughout the discussion. Um, I, and also, I'm curious, um, say a patient comes to you who is never diagnosed with COVID, 
Um, maybe they have some symptoms that, that kind of fit um, long COVID or past. What triggers, you know, your assessment and are there red flags to take note of? Yeah. Is it okay if I jump in to start this one, guys? Okay. Um, so I think at this stage of the game, we really need to consider that any patient, any child that's coming through our door could have COVID-19 or long COVID. So according to new data shared by the um, FAIR group, this this month, nearly two they studied nearly 2 million people with COVID-19 and they followed them afterwards. And some of them were asymptomatic. Some of them were in severe critical condition for a while. But what they found is that even 19% of Americans who were initially asymptomatic developed long COVID. So this is a lot of people when you're considering um, how many people they were following that study. And I think it was close to 50% of people were experiencing long COVID that had been in the hospital. So very high numbers here. So some people may not even know they have it or that they had it, but it could definitely be the cause of their symptoms. And what I really recommend is that anyone who's currently acutely ill, have them stay home. Obviously, I think we're all familiar with that recommendation right now. Um, but if they have a combination of symptoms that appears consistent with COVID-19 or with long COVID, uh, well, if with COVID-19, they should get tested. But if they're in your clinic for something unrelated and it's new in the past year, you might just want to start by going through some lists of symptoms, which uh, watching especially for the big ones that may be um, raising a red flag as a concern, like mental status changes, breathing or heart rate changes, dizziness, intolerance to exercise, extreme fatigue, GI symptoms. And those could all really signal long COVID and especially the kinds of uh, complications that would require special safety conditions, um, considerations. So far, it looks like the prevalence um, for, for adults and children is pretty similar, like Ashley had mentioned. Um, but if they are presenting with anything that they should get referred to a cardiologist or a neurologist for, definitely pass them along, but don't send them away. That's the way I like to phrase it. Pass them along, don't send them away, because there's still a lot we can do for this population. And unfortunately, some of you may have seen the article that came out in the roll call um, in the D.C. area that was suggesting that you know, maybe physical therapy is not a good idea for these patients because they're going to make them exercise and we don't want that. But we have a lot more, you know, tricks in our toolbox. So I would encourage you to still work on them with pacing and other important things um, and helping them figure out what level of activity and exercise is safe for them. So, uh, Hillary, do you want to add to that? I do. I do. So, um, Rebecca earlier mentioned the uh, the long COVID re briefing paper as as a place to find resources. I would say from a pr pediatric perspective, going to longcovidkids.org is a great resource for. Um, they have a broad range of um, of resources for clinicians. Um, again, I'll I'll um, go back to the uh, referring back when you do see um, these red flags for children uh, with long COVID. Majority of the children are presenting with GI symptoms, so you really need to be um, aware of um, when you when you don't have an explained um, GI system. Um, concern that that going back to the pediatrician is is a very important piece we need to be aware of children who um, have 
uh, pre-existing conditions such as asthma, diabetes, sickle cell anemia, and obesity. Um, these are all children that we should be particularly concerned to um, that um, a COVID case might might turn into either long COVID or um, the um, even in the case of asymptomatic children, um, we might see the multi-systemic systemic inflammatory uh, syndrome in children. <laughs> see whether I can get those words out. <laughs> um, so MISC is, um, is a secondary consequence um, of COVID-19. Um, majority or most of the children who um, present with these the symptoms of MISC do not have symptomatic COVID. So, um, so again, monitoring these symptoms is an important. With MISC, we're looking for rashes. Um, and this is something that, you know, parents may, so when you're doing your initial interview or even your um, visit interview at the beginning, um, making sure that you're asking those questions um, before you move forward. Um, some other things I think, you know, with, with children, we've um, seen that um, COVID-19 is not necessarily um, always associated with um, symptomatic or uh, severe cases. There, there are definitely deaths of, um, in children with COVID-19, but we don't see it as, um, as often as within adults. So, um, but there is always a concern that, that this could turn into the, one of the two um, secondary or long COVID. Um, Let's see whether I, I mentioned everything. MISC tends to, um, unlike its um, the Kawasaki, which has uh, similar symptoms, it does have a different profile in that it is often um, presenting in older children, um, and primarily uh, more more often in um, in boys. Um, so we just want to be making sure that we're always monitoring heart rate and other vitals um, and that the recovery from activity is always something that we're looking at as we're asking uh, children to do um, exercise and our, um, our measures as we, as we do this, um, our monitoring. So did yeah. I anything, Ashley? No, I would just throw in um, like being, again, vigilant about um, especially things like race, like MISC tends to hit the Hispanic population more so than any other race. Um, so just being vigilant about things like that and then emphasizing again that um, it's really important to know all of these kind of symptoms associated with long COVID because those are really your breadcrumbs to pick up on if somebody had COVID in the past. Um, and I read a study the other day from the UK that monitored 1,200 kids who had COVID, COVID at the start of the pandemic and absolutely none of them have returned to their baseline functions. So they all have one or more of these long COVID symptoms that are ongoing. So that really is your key to um, honing in on if somebody should um, use these measures and, and all of that. I'm gonna skip to a viewer question. Um, Maria says, I'm writing a COVID case report um, on a 32 year old patient and used the two minute step test. Um, and did not find norms for young groups. Is the test still good to use in young populations? 
And absolutely. So the answer to that, and we, we struggled with that a little bit. This is one that was originally recommended by the home health section. If you remember, all of the tests and measures were first recommended by a section. And then the norms, we didn't find them for the younger population. But one of the reasons we still felt that this was very appropriate is because you can do the MEC level calculation. And then you can, there are standard norms for that. So if you have any questions, Maria, with how to do that MET level calculation, uh, if you want to email, I think they, they dropped it into the chat there, the practice department at the APTA, and then we'll get those calculations to you if you, if you want to be steered in that direction. I don't know, the Ashley, if you have anything to add to that. Uh, oh. Go ahead, Hillary. Um, as part of the pediatric um, secondary measures, we did include a step test. It is not... It is not the two-minute step test, but it is a three-minute step test. So um, it, um, I will find the link for that. It is freely available, and there are norms for um, for the um, for children. So I will I will find the link and and send it along. And we'll talk about this a little bit more later. But we use that as a ceiling effect, the three-minute yep. step test, um, and we actually chose the one-minute sit to stand to look at endurance in our main COVID track. So, um, uh, how do you how do you implement these pediatric measures in children with long term symptoms? So, I would just use them the exact same way as somebody who was COVID positive. I'm breaking up. Anybody else have anything to say? I feel like my sound's breaking up. Oh, we can hear you good. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think if somebody has those long-term symptoms, like we said, we're going to try to back up our theories here by um, reaching out and figuring out what's happening in the clinics right now in the United States through that big survey in July. But uh, if they're having long-term symptoms, we expect that these these tests and measures that are measuring these important constructs will be very, very much the same constructs that we're worried about, whether it's acute, whether it's ongoing symptomatic, or whether it's long COVID, you know, they're... It's now quality of life for the peds. It's participation, the participation and endurance, strength, um, functional mobility. All of those things are still very important. So we recommend that you do those. Uh, it's just uh, right now I would recommend checking out that briefing statement for safe rehabilitation in long COVID, looking at that for those extra considerations since they are similar in adults and pediatrics right now. Great. Um, can you all walk us through some, some say, case scenarios for adults and, and children just to walk people through how, how these uh, measures would be implemented? Sure. Um, I'll start us off with our PEDS algorithm and we'll do the main track first and you all feel free to chime in if you have anything to say. Um, so Hillary talked about this earlier, but with pediatrics, we have a variety of factors to take into account. We have uh, we work with people who are wheelchair users, older children who are more adult like younger children like infants. We work with those who have severe disease and disability, like a patient who might be in ICU with COVID-19. So we really try to capture all the aspects of pediatrics with this algorithm. Um, with that, we added in some ceiling and floor effects with our main track. So our main track is for those who are five to 18 years old and are ambulatory. So for instance, let's take a child who might be COVID positive, who's nine years old and ambulatory. 
We would first assess vital signs to determine if they're stable. From there, we would do a quick cognitive screen. So we didn't put in a standardized cognitive um, outcome measure here because of the age of patients and the ability of patients in pediatrics. Um, so we suggested things like ability to follow five commands, like stick out your tongue. So we would do that with this patient. And then we would determine if they're able to read and complete the CASP or if they would need an adult assist. From there, we would go down to our core track and do a standing long jump test. So this looks at things like our power. Okay. If we had a ceiling effect there, we could do items from the fitness gram or Brockport. If we had a floor effect, the patient was unable to do the standing long jump test, we would give them a zero for that. And then they would complete the five times sit to stand. From there, we'd move to our next category, which would be a time floor to stand test. And that really shows us a lot about functional mobility. And that's something kids do pretty frequently where adults might not. They might not be getting up from the floor a lot, but we do see this a lot in pediatrics. If we had a ceiling measured there, we could do parts of the dynamic gait index or time up and down stairs if applicable, which that might not be applicable for telehealth or home health um, or even acute care if you're not able to take your COVID positive patient in the hallway. Okay. The floor effect for that would be the tug. And then lastly, we would look at endurance. So we chose the one minute step test based on our um, reliability and validity. The ceiling to that would be a three minute step test and a floor effect would be a 30 second walk test. So again, if they couldn't complete the one minute sit to stand test, we would give them a zero and have them do a 30 second walk test, which is very applicable in settings like acute care if you can't leave the room. Okay. We always want to make sure we monitor vital signs throughout our session and then communicate with the team as needed. So if we are concerned about things like depression, we'd make sure we want to communicate that with the healthcare team and get appropriate help on board. Um, and we actually saw a lot of this during lockdown portion of the pandemic because of social isolation, kids not being able to go to school, and actually there being an increase in cases of child abuse. So let's flip our script and say we have a 10-month-old with COVID-19. So we're going to follow a different track for this kiddo. We're going to assess vital signs first to determine if they're stable or not. Our vital signs for a 10-month-old are going to be vastly different than a 9-year-old. So the Academy of Pediatric PT has a nice vital sign guide so you can look at norms per age. We're still gonna assess for cognition, but it's a bit different in infants. So things like if they're able to maintain an alert state, if they smile, interact with an adult. Because they're under five, we're gonna go to the track that's appropriate for that age. So in this instance, the caregivers are gonna complete the CASP because of course the 10 month old can't. We'll use the FLAC to assess things like pain, perform the ages and stages outcome for gross motor skills, and gross motor skills can show us a variety of things. So first and foremost, functional mobility and strength. So is the, is the infant able to push up straight on arms? Are they able to crawl? Okay, we hit both of those domains. We can also see things like endurance and tolerance to activity based on vital sign responses and observation, especially during like the ages and stages. Okay, so we can look at how the child's breathing when they're doing activities against gravity. Do they get tired and fall asleep during the test quickly? Are they only able to hold their head up and prone for a few seconds? And as you repeat prone position, does the time of holding their head up decrease? 
Okay, do they get fussy? Again, we're gonna document all of our findings and talk to the healthcare team. Now say we had an older kid who might be 12 years old, but is intubated in the ICU and really unable to participate in the core outcome measures. We would again, look at things like vital signs, have the caregivers help us fill out the CASP. And then we would go up to a similar track from the um, case we just did. So in an instance of an older kid, we're gonna look at the MRCSS and actually do some manual muscle testing and looking at strength. We can utilize the PERME ICU mobility scale to look at things like functional mobility of this kid. And while we're doing all of that, we're gonna measure vital sign response to task. Okay. Again, communicating our findings with the healthcare team. As the patient progresses, we can continue to deliver these outcome measures and see the progress. Um, and these will go great with that kid as he transitions into things like rehab or outpatient therapy. And these measures can be performed there as well. Hillary, would you like to take um, the wheelchair track? Sure, I can go ahead with that. So I wanted to describe a case of, uh, I want I a 10 year old. Um, so as Ashley mentioned, um, if we were to see the child in the school setting, which is a, a place that we could set this um, the stage for this case. Um, imagine um, a 10-year-old with a diagnosis of cerebral palsy at a gross motor function classification level of four. So we know that this child is using a wheelchair for the primarily for, for his mobility. Um, we would do an initial interview um, and we may um, pull in the um, his teachers and his his parents for the uh, child and adolescent um, uh, scale of participation or CASP. Um, we would do a screening for potentially for MISC for and for long COVID, depending on how long um, he, the the symptoms have been lasting. Um, the first part of the me measure after after the CASP. Um, we would recommend doing the seated push-up test and monitoring vitals afterwards, see how the recovery was for that small um, for that small measure. It is only 30 seconds of, of a push-up. So if that uh, child had a response and was having a heart rate change in that in that amount of time, we might we might delay the, the remaining uh, parts of the course and the back to a primary care physician. If they didn't have, uh, if they had a, an appropriate response, we could move on to the um, to the functional and endurance measures. Um, the recommended uh, test that had the highest psychometric was something called the Utrecht uh, wheelchair skills test. It's a multi-item uh, wheelchair skills test. Um, assesses the child's ability to. Um, to use their wheelchair functionally um, and take, but has 16, uh, around 16 items. Um, again, we're monitoring vitals throughout um, and uh, making sure that, that the child is able to follow directions um, through this, this test. Um, depending on the, the vital signs response, we would then move on to the endurance, uh, the endurance tests that 
um, that we chose will depend on the setting. Majority of them are at least five meters in length. So um, this might be limited if we are in a telehealth setting or um, in a home health, but in the school setting, um, we can set up cones um, for the uh, wheelchair sprint test or for the muscle power sprint test, um, five meters or 15 meters um, respectively. So, um, we always, as I'll mention again and again, uh, we always want to mention vital signs um, and really monitoring that um, and referring back, um, communicating all of our, no matter what setting we're in, we're always communi communicating back with primary care um, and referring as needed. Um, so that was, that was how I, Rebecca, do you want to um, go forward with the adults? Yes. Yeah, so why don't I take this from two totally different ends of the spectrum here? So let's first say if this individual is in the ICU, does this even still apply? And then I'll jump through and say, okay, what if they were pretty much asymptomatic, but now they've developed post-exertional malaise and does it still work for those individuals? And I think I can show you that it, it does still apply to both. So Within the ICU, yes, a lot of these tests are not going to be completed if this individual is intubated or unresponsive in the ICU. But you are a hugely important part of this per, of the of creating the right clinical picture of this individual's recovery. So we need you to still complete these, but this is what it would look like. So you're going to start with that chart review. You're going to check their vitals. You're gonna do the, the quick cognitive screen if they have awareness and are able to participate in that, but they can still achieve scores on some of these. Um, even if they're not able to understand directions, uh, you're still going to be able to complete that promise or the EQ5D5L with the caregiver. And that's going to give a perspective of the impact of this disease on their life. Um, and so then when you start moving down through some of these other ones, maybe they could do parts of the MRC uh, SEMScore, which is a supine test that is, um, is often performed in the ICU. And one of the main reasons we put this because we wanted some kind of physical measure that people who could not get out of supine um, were able to participate in. So we tried to have something there that could capture those patients that are functioning at that lower level. Obviously, in that situation, they're, they're probably not doing the SPBB um, or the two-minute step test, but you still score these things, and you're going to give them a score of zero, which is something we talk about with the NeuroCore outcome measures often is the power of the zero, because without that score there, then when they do score higher, maybe they achieve a six on the SPBB. Now, that's a huge change, but if we didn't have that initial score, then it's not helpful. So... While this may be really quick for you to run down through because you're saying, okay, with the slums, they can't really participate. And that's what you're writing. They're scoring a zero because they are unable to participate at this time. Then you do the EQ5D5L with the caregiver. They maybe score on the MRC sum score, but then they're receiving zeros on these last two. And you're documenting the reason why. Because when you say they, they were unable to stand up, but now they can do this with the two-minute step test, that shows a clear picture of patient improvement. So you want to put that in the chart. Um, but then down here, those complete appropriate tests and measures, maybe your evaluation in the ICU does look more like, you know, we're assessing the lung sounds. We are checking for skin integrity. We are um, 
we're, we're doing some of those other things. We're moving towards discharge planning. We're, we're looking at other aspects that might not be included here, but that's kind of what this gray box is for. But the idea behind the core is that every setting, every evaluation, these are marked and logged and available to the patient so that they can show care um, and not show care, that they can show improvement or maybe when their improvement is slowing and then they can start to ask their healthcare providers, is there anything else I can do in order to, um, to make bigger improvements or better improvements? But now if we look at this again and we say, okay, so we have this individual who um, has extreme fatigue. Well, one of the things that I would recommend is that when you're seeing somebody in outpatient, for whatever they have right now, that you start asking them some of these basic questions that are, what are your signs and symptoms? What signs and symptoms do you have that might be consistent with COVID-19 or long COVID and run down through the list? Um, and if you're seeing a pattern, a clump of these things, then you should be screening. And while it's not in this clinical application algorithm yet, I imagine that shortly here, this is going to get updated, hopefully, you know, in the month of August after we get feedback from a lot of physical therapists. But I imagine that there's going to be some screening very early on for does this person have symptoms of dysautonomia? Does this person have symptoms of post-exertional malaise or that, um, yeah, the, the symptom exacerbations post-exertion? And so if they do, that might modify what's going to come afterwards. So they'll still be able to complete the slums, the EQ5D5L, probably, unless they have a lot of problems with mental triggers. If those are the cases, you may have to space some of these things out. You may send them home with them, ask them to complete some things here and there when it comes to the EQ5D5L, bring it back. Obviously, the slums is going to have to be completed in, in one sitting, but maybe it's not the first day. These don't all have to be completed on the first day. Um, and then, so when you're looking at the performing MRC sum scores, that remains appropriate. It's in supine, as long as that individual is not overchallenged on that day, just being mindful of that. Uh, so if they have dysautonomia or if they have post-exertional malaise, we may have to think about how we might want to alter that SPPB score. I mean, uh, testing, maybe it is more spread out. It's a three-part thing that involves some sit-to-stands and involves some gait speed and some simple balance testing. But Maybe you're writing next to that score that they needed rest breaks or some of these things were completed, you know, very spread out. And maybe the two-minute step test is just not appropriate for that patient. So what are you going to do? You're not going to skip it. You're going to write that score of zero so that if later they are able to participate in some of that, if they're able to get some score there, then that's an improvement, an improvement that you can show through having had that score of zero initially. So... I do think it's important um, to still consider these tests, but it just may mean some extra background uh, questions in the interview and then some extra screening. And again, I would point you towards those safe rehabilitation and long COVID guidelines right now that make recommendations um, about screening for, for post-exertional malaise, for screening for dysautonomia. And then we just our team's working to figure out exactly where we put those in, but it's early. You're going to want to do that before you get down to the rest of this. Rebecca, I'll throw in one thing and just say with our survey, we're going to ask questions about why you might not be performing these measures. 
And we still have a lot of facilities out there that don't mobilize patients who are intubated. So some facilities, you might not be able to do a two-minute step test with a patient who's intubated. Some, you might be able to, and of course, depending on the patient. Uh, but that is something we are going to look at and look at the results. Um, I noticed something uh, come up in the chat that I w just wanted to mention and a, and a big thank you to um, whoever put in the DSQ PED. I think that's a wonderful um, uh, screening tool. And I believe that, you know, as we learn more about this, um, how long COVID is, is behaving in children and stuff, uh, you know, I think that this is something that is a, it's a work in progress. And um, I welcome this. Uh, I would love to put this in the core because I think it's like, it's such a simple, well, I don't want to say simple because it's so important, but um, these are the kinds of things we want to have um, members weigh in on and say, yes, we need this. Great. That sounds fabulous. So um, I'd say let's, Rebecca, let's put it in. <laughs> It's, uh, I've, got, I've got it written down right here so that we'll uh, bring that to the uh, Because, you know, you. these are the things that we need clinicians to do and to tell each other about because, again, it's all evolving and we can't all keep up with everything in the moment. So um, whoever's using the good stuff, we should be sharing. So, again, thank you for throwing that out there. That's great. Um, I'd like to switch gears just for a second. Um, this week, the Centers for Disease Control uh, released some guidance on assessing and treating um, patients with long COVID. Um, it seems more geared towards adults, but just um, generally speaking, it seems like there's a lot of overlap between um, your core outcome measures and what the CDC is recommending, but would you like to speak to that? Yeah, I'm happy to take the first stab at this, at this question. Um, I hope that they're watching what we're doing, and it does kind of appear that they might be. Uh, that would be a great sign for physical therapy that the CDC is considering our recommendations. Um, our team was really happy to see how often those recommendations that we made nearly a year ago are lining up with what the CDC is, is currently recommending. Uh, our five, for our five core, the CDC also recommended the PROMISE or the EQ5D5L, which was the health-related quality of life. Um, they also recommended gate speed. Now, they recommended using the 10-meter walk test. We thought about that one, but we decided that measuring gate speed as a sub-item you know, sub of the SPPB was a better way to capture more things more quickly. So we also recommended a gate speed, which is in alignment with their recommendation. Um, they, they recommended the two-minute step test for uh, endurance and that was our recommendation as well. I'll also point out where we differed and, you know, why we're okay with that difference. So they recommended for cognition, either using the MOCA or the mini mental status exam. We looked at both of those. We, uh, we really struggled with not using one of them, but in the end, it came down to the fact that the MOCA and the mini mental both have a cost related to them. And so many clinicians were not going to be able to access those tests for that reason. So we, did not go for that. We picked the slums instead. Um, and lastly, they skipped the, consta, the construct of strength, which we understand is less function related, but we feel it's very important to be able to follow progress across the continuum. Like I, when I mentioned the individual in the ICU, that's one of the core that actually shows some, some movement capabilities there. So we, we still feel like that is an important test. Um, and then with the 
the balance, they recommended the Berg balance scale, which is part of our clinical application algorithm. So when somebody did not do well on the balance section within the SPBB, then we recommended that they go to the neuro core outcome measures, which include the Berg balance scale. So that was, it was overall, we're really excited when those came out about the alignment that we had with them, not only with the ones we just talked about, but also some of our screening recommendations. So I can take um, just a little bit about what the, in the pediatric realm, um, we did choose the uh, one minute sit to stand. Um, so that was a nice, that was a nice recognition of, um, and we did have a, a balance, um, the, the corresponding um, dynamic gate index, which is similar to the Tinetti. And um, I think overall, um, as Rebecca mentioned, it's, I think that the strength component is important, particularly in children in the secondary and long COVID, as we are seeing um, weakness as one of the um, primary symptoms. So I think continuing with this um, as tolerated, um, depending on symptomatic uh, responses to post-COVID. So um, I'm, I'm feeling that they um, that we were in quite a bit of alignment. I was very pleased to see. Um, and will continue to inform each other. So. Great. Um, I think we're at the end of our uh, viewer questions. Um, if people still have questions, can they put them in the chat and uh, you can address them in the actual uh, comments? And so while we're waiting for those questions to come in, we'll just reiterate that our our group, this is these core recommendations and the clinical algorithms, we designed them to be living documents. We are fine and okay with saying there are better measures, better things out there, better ways we can do this. So let's adapt to that change. So we are planning on putting out um, that survey here shortly, and it should be available through the month of July. It'll be posted out through the APTA, but also out um, through the individual sections. So follow up with your section if you're not uh, finding access to that survey starting in July. Um, I wanted to add too that there was uh, there will be opportunities to uh, for us to reach back out to you if you would like that. Um, on the survey there will be, um, I'm assuming there will be email um, component if you wanna share mm -hmm. and then um, the, the, the team will We'll reach out if, if there's um, additional pieces that you'd like to discuss. We have another viewer question. Um, so he wants to know, is anyone doing olfactory retraining? That is a very interesting question. And I will tell you that that has not made it to my, my top yet of uh, things to really focus on with, with COVID. But I, I read one article on it, I want to say a couple of weeks ago at like two o'clock in the morning one night because I was just interested in it. I don't have any great resources to share with you, though, right now. Um, but if that's if that's something of interest or you feel like you have strong ideas or recommendations regarding that, please pass it along to us. That's great. Is there anything else that you guys uh, would want to add while we... Uh, wait for any more questions. I feel like I talk so much already. <laughs> I'd like to say thank you for everyone who who joined in and um, 
Yes, thank each of you uh, for taking the time to do this. I think this is really valuable uh, for members and non-members. Um, if you if people want to learn more about any of APTA's COVID-19 resources, including these outcome measures, you can visit APTA's coronavirus resource page at www.apta.org. And I think that wraps it up for today. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. For more COVID-19 resources for the physical therapy profession, visit apta.org slash coronavirus. APTA podcasts like this one are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, or by visiting apta.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.